I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Good to see you again, Ken. A few weeks ago, you explained how you felt commercial property would perform after the federal election. Perhaps we could take a quick look at the global scene, and in particular, China. I guess the question behind what you're asking is, will China continue to underpin both the Australian economy and commercial property going forward? Well, that probably depends on who you're asking. I mean, most miners are somewhat guarded. Many of the journalists are currently painting a gloomy picture. And most of our politicians seem to have been arguing among themselves in the lead up to the election. So it's no wonder most of us are confused. And whenever the general community is confused, it takes what seems to be the safest route, and that is simply to do nothing. And this seems to be the dilemma our economy has been facing over the the past few years. Anyway, let's take a peek behind the Chinese curtain. Perhaps the best place to begin would be by talking to someone, as I did in those interviews we discussed the other week, and that is leading architect Bruce Henderson, who's currently involved in designing some major projects in Dilian in China. Now, he's right at the coalface, and he's dealing with those who are making the decisions on the Chinese future economic process on a a day-by-day basis. And his explanation of where things stand is really quite alarmingly simple. And perhaps I'll just walk you through some of the points he made in an off-the-air discussion we had after that, uh, that interview I took with him. You see, unlike other major economic powerhouses, China only has one political player, and that's the Communist Party. Now, the administration of that party changes every 10 years, and that occurred towards the end of last year. But I'll, I'll cover more on that in a moment. Now, the 10 to 13% annual growth in China, which required our iron ore and coal, has been driven by massive construction, mainly in the new housing and infrastructure. And that's what occurred about six, seven years ago. Now, the government controls the release of available land by selling long-term leases to the residential apartment developers. Now, most of the recent massive housing projects have occurred by reclaiming farmland. In other words, for example, a 600-unit housing project may contain 100 government, what we would call pre-sales, to those rehoused farmers. So from a developer's point of view, that was pretty attractive. Now, most of China's recent decline in growth, and mind you, that's still a healthy 7.7%, has occurred through the government's cutback in the granting of new leases to these developers. Now, with housing construction effectively coming to a standstill in the middle of last year, there was no income from land sales and work on new roads, bridges and other infrastructure obviously couldn't proceed. And this is what impacted adversely upon our mining sector. Now, you have to understand the Chinese logic. Given there's only one ruling party, the communist leaders are solely concerned with the image and preservation. Therefore, 
the outgoing administration says it was merely responding to global pressure and therefore brought the Chinese runaway growth under control. And in the process, you've got to say they've effected a soft landing. And when the new administration assumed control late last year, it heaped praise upon the outgoing administration for its careful and its prudent management of the economy. Now, since then, the new administration has started to make itself look good by stimulating the economy through once again granting more of these land leases so that the developers can recommence their residential construction. So if you think of it in those terms, it all starts to make sense because unlike what you find in Western countries, the incoming Chinese administration has not bagged the outgoing administration and something you know we've seen in our election process. Instead, their aim was to position both administrations as having the country's best interests at heart and thereby allowing the Communist Party to be the overall winner. So I think if you look at that context, and and last week there was some good numbers coming out of China, and it seems to confirm everything that Bruce was outlining there. And as I said, it seems simplistic, but it makes sense. I'm now starting to grasp some of what underpins the Chinese philosophy. But do you think their economy will continue to grow? And for how long? Yes, you you need to look behind the curtain and not allow yourself to become concerned with the recent headlines. You've got to remember that media companies need to make sure that their newspapers sell. Now, a couple of months ago, share speculators drew a deep breath rather sharply as the Chinese three-month growth GDP to March came in at just 7.7%. And true, this was down from the expected 7.9, but it's still in line with China's overall growth throughout 2012. And, I mean, let's get real. I mean, compared with anywhere else in the world, 7.7% is clearly an enviable figure. Now, it was six years ago when China was boasting growth rates of over 10% per annum. And since then, its economy has grown to where it is now about 40% larger And therefore, its current GDP at 7.7% in physical terms is pretty much the same volume as it was six years ago because it's now based on a much larger economy. So what we've got to look at is how will China moving forward affect the mining sector? Now, you can undertake any amount of microeconomic analysis you like as you try and attempt to predict the alternative scenarios for China's future. But let's just stick with a few of the underlying fundamentals. In 1981, China's urban population was just 20%. Currently, China is about 50% urbanised. Now, that's exactly where the US was in 1920. And China's current steel consumption is 500 kilograms per person. That's the precise amount the US was consuming at the same point in its urbanisation program. Now, it took the US from 1920 until 1975, in other words, 50 years, before it reached the 75% level of urbanisation, and from there on, it's more or less plateaued. Now, during this period, 
the US steel consumption peaked at 700 kilograms per person, and then it fell back to 400 kilograms per person. So based on current projections, most experts believe China will actually reach its 70% urbanisation by the year 2030. And given this time frame and the potential volume of steel that will be involved, China's strong demand for our iron ore and coal will continue. Now, okay, maybe it won't be within the next 20, 30 years, as they say. If it pushes out a little further, it's still a huge consumption of iron ore, coal and our commodities that are needed to fuel the infrastructure associated with this urbanisation program. And while the investment in new mines may have plateaued, the demand for these commodities and therefore our terms of trade should remain rather healthy for the next 15 to 20 years. Now, perhaps just to round off this discussion, we ought to have a quick look at the US economy. Now, there's been mixed messages flying out of the US, but again, let's focus on the underlying determinants of consumer confidence. According to a recent AIDS article, the US housing market has now once more started recording healthy price gains. And there's a well-regarded S&P Chase Schiller Home Price Index, and that has recently confirmed that prices rose by 8.1% in 20 major cities during the first half of this year. However, in addition to this boost in consumer confidence, US companies seem to be emerging from the GFC, having engineered substantial gains in productivity. And therefore, while a US recovery may appear to be a little slow, the necessary ingredients are there for it to be sustained. Apparently, it's not just you who holds this view. I read recently about several key commentators who seem to be thinking along similar lines. Ever since Julia Gillard announced the September election in February, the ensuing political hiatus has meant almost everything, including our thinking, has simply been moving sideways, neither up nor down, just drifting. And that's completely understandable because when uncertainty reigns, people tend to defer making decisions. But what are some of the experts saying? You've got economists grabbing the headlines by suggesting there's a 20% chance of Australia experiencing a recession within the next two years. And they're mainly pointing to the US and China as the cause. And as I've just outlined, that's not got a lot of substance to it. But thank goodness there are some clear thinkers who still prevail. For example, there's, I think it's James Gordon, who is the Australian-born head of Morgan Stanley. He's recently said that the US economy is actually much better growing faster and in much better shape than people think. Now, he sees the recently announced tightening of the US quantitative easing as a clear sign that their economy is on the pathway to sustained recovery. And he evidences that by the consumers being deleveraged and being primed to spend, also the stability returning to the housing market and the US enjoying population growth. And then you only have to look at Terry McCran, who is Australia's leading business commentator, and he explained that cutting back on the quantitative easing is actually in the context of the US economy strengthening. 
So it's actually good news message, not just in the US, but for the rest of the world as well. And it's especially so as Bernanke has made it clear that the Fed would err on the side of keeping the economy going. Now, David Bassanese, who's the AFR financial journalist, he recently headlined an article with Relax, Don't Worry About China or the US. And he believes China's targeted growth of 7.5% reflects a more sustainable rate for what is now a much larger economy. And unlike most Western countries, China has ample capacity for significant financial stimulus. Now, he feels the US has shown solid employment growth and consumer confidence there has also improved. And as such, Bassanese also considers the Fed's move to tighten should be seen as good news as it suggests the US recovery is durable. So you've got to ask yourself why the current share market volatility? Look, I think it's clear to say that US bond traders were caught off guard by the Fed's announcement of that tightening or potential tightening in, in the easing. And with most trades being computer-driven nowadays, responses have been immediate as investors and dealers clamoured to minimise their exposure. Now, as a result, you've probably seen an overreaction, fueled in part by the media headlines around the world. However, the more measured commentators, as we've just seen, regard this more as a bull market correction rather than the start of a downturn. And they're predicting the lower Australian dollar will provide a welcome boost as far as our exporters are concerned. Given all that, what strategies should our listeners be adopting at the moment? Like with most investment strategies, commercial property starts with a blueprint. And here are a few tips that you might like to take on board. The first one is learn what the insiders know. If you want to be a player in commercial property, you need to start to think like a professional. For example, know the commercial property and how it's valued differently to residential property. In other words, it's the income on commercial real estate that's directly related to its lettable area. And that's what you need to take into account. Residential properties are valued quite separately to that. When you also need to map out a plan of action, you need to setting priorities in commercial real estate when you're looking at a deal. In other words, how much can you afford to pay? How much do you expect to make on the deal? How many tenants are already on board if you've got multiple tenants and who are paying rent? And how much space do you need to fill if there are some vacancies? And how long will that take? You also learn need to learn how to recognise a good deal. Top commercial investors know one when they see it. And so you need to ask, what's their secret? Well, one of the first things is they always have an exit strategy. The, the best deals are the ones you know you can walk away from in with, within a specified time frame. And it also helps to have a sharp landlord's eye. Always be looking for damage that needs repairs, how you can add value, also how to assess risks, and just keep in mind your financial goals. Then perhaps looking at becoming familiar with the the key metrics. I mean, this is not rocket science, but things like net operating income, which is your gross operating income, less your 
expenses, understanding a capitalisation rate and how it works, that it creates when you take your net income and, and divide by the capitalisation rate, you get the value of the property. But that assumes the net income is market value. And we discussed that, I think, in an earlier podcast. And some commercial investors also look at on a cash-on-cash basis. In other words, they assess their properties and compare them on the first year's performance as on the basis of how much cash they're generating. You also need to look for motivated sellers. I mean, like any business, customers drive real estate and commercial property investing. So your job is to find them, specifically those who are ready and eager to sell, hopefully below market. As you can appreciate, nothing happens until you find a deal which is usually accompanied by a motivated seller. Now, if your seller isn't motivated, he or she probably won't be willing to negotiate. And maybe the last tip is to learn to farm a specific niche or neighbourhood. And a great way to build up your expertise in commercial property is to closely study a specific sector of the market or a single location. You can always widen your focus later, but begin by becoming an expert within a small target market. Any final thoughts before we finish up today? I think as we discussed in an earlier podcast, you need to treat commercial property investing as you would any business. And all I've done here is to simply highlight some of the fundamental business principles that you as an investor need to adopt in order to be successful. Okay, we've gone quite deeply into the China issue today, which was great. And hopefully everyone listening got as much out of it as I did. So, looking forward to seeing you next week. Yeah, and me too, Ken.